This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. The fundamentals of the Australian economy are strong. A shameful and pathetic attempt. We have maintained our AAA credit rating. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly, trying to match your pace today, PK, from Insiders. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit excited. I've already walked the dog, gone on a run. I'm, I'm ready to take on the world, Fran. I know that feeling. I know that feeling. It's a good way to start your day, though, hey? It certainly is. Now, since we recorded our last episode, one family's fight to remain in Australia has taken over the... The political conversation and debate, a Tamil family are facing deportation. They're currently on Christmas Island. Their lawyers have been granted a short reprieve. They have until Friday this week to consider what to do next. And just to be clear, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, so there may be a result on the court case. But we can still have a much broader conversation because the battle lines have really been drawn on this. Labor taking a really different line to the government. Immigration Minister David Coleman has now said he won't intervene in the case to allow the youngest child who's just two years old to apply for a protection visa. And here's what Scott Morrison had to say earlier this week. I understand absolutely the motivation, the compassion that Australians have expressed, but I also know from bitter experience, if you make the wrong calls on these issues, then you invite tragedy. So, Fran, what do you make of the tough language? Because this week the Prime Minister made it crystal clear. In fact, he said no amount of public campaign or feeling will change his mind. He says this is his principle and he believes it strongly. Well, I think this is a textbook response from Scott Morrison. He was the immigration minister who introduced Operation Sovereign Borders as prime minister. He's already, you know, made a point of serving out tough language around border protection, having a crack at Labor last year over the Medivac bills. There was never any doubt that he would come out with this response as soon as Labor started to call for these people, this Tamil family, to be allowed to stay, which is what Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader, did this week. Let's have a listen to that. This isn't a threat to its immigration policy. It's not a threat to Australia's borders. What it is, is simply what Peter Dutton has done on more than four thousand occasions as Minister. And that was basically Labor's position saying let them stay. This is not going to be some kind of chink in our border protection regime. Predictably, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, and Peter Dutton, the Home Affairs Minister, came out swinging, calling Anthony Albanese a hypocrite, calling him, accusing him of being soft on border protection. But really, I mean, I think the essence of this is one minister using ministerial intervention to allow one family to stay is not going to weaken our borders. I think it's a phony argument. That's what ministerial discretion is for. It's been used many times, which is the point Anthony Albanese was making. And for the government to say now that, um, oh, well, they're not going to be moved by a Twitter storm is also a fake argument because the government has been asked for more than 18 months to allow this family to stay. They could have done it quietly and early. There's particular circumstances, two little children, Children who were born in this country and there wouldn't have been a Twitter storm. So I think the government is using a phony argument. It's not to say that the rhetoric around tough on borders isn't going to work for them. It's an interesting one, though. This one's a bit more complex, I think. That's why the Prime Minister's acknowledged the community sentiment. There is absolutely, if you look at the election results, not just this one, but over the last 15 years, clearly a sentiment in the community which is broadly supportive of the tough on borders approach. 
Yeah, but, but that doesn't mean that's any government should pander to it. No, but but in this individual case, there is also a view that you can make exceptions, right? Um, I don't know if everyone thinks that, but clearly... But the law says we can make exceptions. We, well, have, the, a min- we have the so-called God laws, which is the ministerial intervention. Yeah, and, and that's a whole other debate, whether we should have those laws. But yes, we do. Ministers can intervene. And the point is that they have lost right up to the High Court, right? What's interesting, though, is that something shifted here. We've got people like Alan Jones, uh, you know, not known to be a sort of soft on borders guy, uh, saying they should stay. We've got people like Barnaby Joyce saying they should stay. Ken O'Dowd, who's the local member for Billawila has said also another LNP person, nationals sitting in that party room, they should stay. So there is a bit of a split. Uh, Admittedly, they're in the minority, but the fact that there are these voices saying they should stay and there should be an exception to the rule shows that perhaps on this family there is a shift. But I think for the government, it's also been an opportunity to draw a distinction from Labor. Labor in, in recent times has been trying to say they have the same border protection policies as the government, but Labor has drawn a line on this issue. There are a few others as well. And the government has been really keen to pounce on that and say, hang, hang on a minute, it shows that Labor is soft and, as Peter Dutton put it, that Anthony Albanese wants to be Mr Popular. Sure, that is the government's response. Oh, what I'm saying is it's a phony argument. It's the response, it's a textbook response we've seen rolled out many times and that's why Labor has been reticent to make itself different on these issues in the past. But it did it over the Medivac laws led by Anthony Albanese. I think in a way perhaps the opposition leader would relish this chance to differentiate Labor from the from the government because um, it's been, you know, each party um, has to be answerable to some degree to its base and Anthony Albanese has been criticised by a lot of Labor supporters for folding on some of the legislation that's come through already, the tax cuts for instance. So this is a chance um, for Labor to stand up for its principles and the principles that I think it would assign to most of its supporters. Just to note something else, there was another area where the government has tried to wedge Labor this week. They've proposed harsh new laws and penalties for convicted pedophiles, including mandatory minimum sentences. Now, this has been brought to the parliament before. It's not brand new. It will be reintroduced, though, next week uh, when parliament returns. And my mail is that Labor may cave on this one because we're talking here about the issues issue around pedophiles mm. and I don't think Labor wants to be stuck in the chamber voting in a way that makes creates the impression, I'm not saying that would be their motivation, but the impression uh, that they're not tough on pedophiles. So this will be an interesting test too for Labor that the government has set, but the government says it wants to bring in this legislation. I think it's interesting too. It happened on the same week. And just to clarify that, the Labor's, um, the difficulty or the wedge, if you like, for Labor is that it, it brings in mandatory sentencing and Labor is philosophically opposed to that, correct? Absolutely, philosophically opposed. The other story, the major story for this week too for the government was around the economy. Australia's economy has slowed to its lowest level since 2009. The economy growing by just 1.4% for the year. That's very slow, but as the Treasurer points out, it's also positive and that's a lot better than some others are doing. The fundamentals of the Australian economy are strong. We have maintained our AAA credit rating. Employment growth is at 2.6%, more than twice the OECD average and more than three times what we inherited when we came to office. 
But Pico, the argument really that's being had and must be had is not whether the economy is slowing. It is. It has slowed, as we can see. The issue is what to do about it and when. And Labor has been trying to push the government, get in front of the government on this, saying they should bring in some kind of you know mini-budget or economic statement with a whole lot of stimulus built in to get things going, to get ahead of the slowdown. The government's saying, no, they won't do that because they've already put that stimulus, $14 billion worth of it, through the tax cuts into the economy and we want to wait and see the next quarter figures to see what that does. The government also says it's bringing forward some infrastructure spending. It's going to have an impact. Just wait and see. But there are plenty of people who think waiting and see is not the right response. This is all about the government preserving its forecast surplus for next budget. And within a few weeks' time, we're going to get new figures from the government on where this year, 2018-19, ended up. It was forecast to be in deficit by $14 billion, but there's been a whole lot of iron ore being sold, Mm. which has meant the coffers are full. And uh, I think it looks like the Treasurer will be announcing that we're going to end this year either in balance or in slightly positive territory. So the government's got a good news story coming along, and I think Josh Frydenberg's just trying to hold on till then. But the retail figures that were released also this week demonstrate that it's not such a rosy picture for the economy. And many others, including Labor, are saying, hang on a minute, that gives us a pretty indication that the trajectory we're on is not a good one. And so it's a bit, Mm. um, it's perhaps overly optimistic to expect that the next quarter is going to be some sort of massive shift in terms of the where we're going. And that's where you make the very, very pertinent point that it's all about how you intervene, when you intervene and whether and the government is too slow. And how people spend their tax cut, right? I mean, that's really what we're waiting to see, whether people bank it, pay it off their mortgage or go into the shops and start shopping. And uh, if they don't start shopping, then, you know, the pressure really intensifies on the government to do something more. The big call is why don't you top up New Start? That would cost about $3 billion. That money, any top up in the New Start allowance would immediately be spent, you'd think. Um, but the government resisting that, PK because it's trying to protect this surplus. Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor. Welcome to the party room. How are you? I'm I'm actually quite well. How are you? We are. Oh, look, sorry, Fran. We've become like, we've been co-hosting for so long. We... You've got a single brain, haven't you? I know. Our our family, we're doing well, aren't we, Fran? (laughs) The party room team are fantastic. Fantastic. (laughs) Catherine, can we talk about the Channel 9 fundraiser, hosting a fundraiser for the Liberal Party? What the? I mean, since Mm. when do media companies in this country host political fundraisers or am I being totally naive here? No, I I don't think you are being totally naive. I don't know. Look, perhaps this happened every day of the week and somehow we journalists in our innocence went about our daily activities completely unaware that uh, our masters and betters were in fact holding fundraisers for political parties. But I was really shocked, actually, when mm. I read it. I thought... I mean, they've raised... Th- let's, for everybody listening who perhaps doesn't know the details, Channel 9, it's been revealed, last week held a fundraiser on Channel 9 premises in the studio in the set of the Today Show, $10,000 a head dinner to have dinner with the Prime Minister and other senior ministers, and they raised nearly three quarters of a million dollars for the Liberal Party. Well, that's the thing. There is a line there. There's a separation between what journalism and media companies contribute in a democracy and the governing parties. There should be an absolute clear 
separation. I don't even think, for example, that media companies should go to fundraisers, right? There's mm. sort of been a distinction in some of the coverage uh, this week that obviously, you know, it's terribly wicked for Nine to host a fundraiser, but uh, sort of less wicked on a scale of wickedness. I don't know how we construct this scale mm. of wickedness, but anyway, let's just imagine we've got a scale of wickedness. There's sort of at one point, at one end of it, there's hosting fundraisers and another end of it, there's just popping along to a lunch for, you know, Joe Bloggs and of, of whatever political party. I just do not think we should be involved as a profession in mm. any capacity in fundraising for political parties. Now, obviously, if, if our bosses do that, it's not like it, uh, well, not in organisations I've worked for, it doesn't trickle down, but it's just it's just wrong. It's a bad look. I mean, there's lots of argument to be had about corporations getting access to politicians by paying large amounts of money to go to fundraisers. And you're right, there is a lot of questions about whether that should happen in this country, let alone with media companies. But hosting a fundraiser, raising money for a party like this, I think is another order of things. And the focus comes on it because Nine Now, is not just a television network and an online news outlet, it's also the owner of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Australian Financial Review, so a fair swag of our press. It's been interesting to see the artists formerly known as Fairfax <laughs> put up their hands to nine and say, mm, excuse me, dudes, this isn't the way we conduct ourselves as a general rule. And it's obviously pleasing to see that Nine has absorbed or seems to have absorbed that message and, and understood that there was Because they've sort of apologised, haven't they, just to give well, some have, context yeah, to that? They have. And, and look, I don't know, just perhaps it was an honest mistake. I mean, I, but I, I don't know how well, it's one What's the second makes time now? We now mistake. know well, there was one last year. <laughs> well, I, I don't... I can't fathom how you as a media executive would make that decision. Not only was it the wrong decision, just open and shut, uh, reputationally it's terrible because journalists obviously are not massively trusted by the mm. general public. I think we're probably slightly ahead of politicians on the on the scale of who do you hate most, but I would say only just. Pretty close, yep. And we have to be attentive to that. Our, our constituency for doing our job exists in the public. That's where it exists. It exists among our listeners, our readers, our viewers. That is our public. That is the people we serve. Another thing has happened this week, and um, lots of legal issues around this story, but the Australian Federal Police have executed a search warrant at the home of a Commonwealth official in Canberra. It's been revealed now that this is an intelligence officer, Cameron Gill, who's married to Australia's ambassador to Iraq. What did you make of this uh, because we've seen the AFP raids over the sort of last couple of months. The others mm. were on journalists. This is now on a Commonwealth official. Mm. We don't have all the details about why they were raiding. But again, there's been, you know, condemnation of this. It's very disconcerting, it must be said. Now, I think we need to be very clear, obviously, that we do not know key details of this case. We don't know really why this raid has occurred. We can surmise what it might be related to, but I you know, don't even think we should do that, frankly, because we don't, we don't really know. But the general environment, and obviously we've all been very hyper-attentive to this in recent times because of police raids on the ABC premises in Sydney and police raids on the home of Annika Smethurst, a prominent News Corp journalist in the gallery, it is disconcerting. This environment. And here comes another one mm. on a Commonwealth official. Again, uh, look, I stress, uh, we, don't, we don't know with any certainty what, what this raid related to, but obviously here we go again. Cops going into 
someone's home emerging with garbo bags, was it? I think they were yep. garbo bags they came out with, uh, full of... You loosely, know, held. <laughs> loosely, loosely held garbo bags. I love bags. the question, what's in the bags? That was the what? question of the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where it are seemed like a lot of stuff. <laughs> Well, it's like you do wonder, really. $64 million question. What's in the bag? Exactly. What is in the bag? The most coherent thing I can say about it is that it it reinforces that we are working in this quite disconcerting environment at the moment and it sort of plays back into that debate that we in the profession have been trying to have, really, since these police raids about whether or not there is the right balance at the moment between the freedom to expose wrongdoing, the freedom to report wrongdoing or things that are in the public interest, you know, that doesn't even have to be wrongdoing if it's just a public Stuff interest people should that people, people should know about it. It's not a pleasant or easy environment at the moment. Catherine, let's switch to a, a, another story. Patricia and I were speaking earlier about the Tamil family who are facing deportation. The courts delayed their deportation date. There's almost certainly going to be some kind of appeal or new action taken after that, so I doubt they'll be leaving the country in the coming days. But mm. it's um, you know basically run out of options unless the government cracks and, and softens and gives them protection, which is looking unlikely. But the political debate has switched very much into Labor says the government should have compassion. The government says Labor's soft on borders, but Labor has inserted something different here, which has gone to the Prime Minister's faith, the question of his faith, and urging mm-hmm. him to honour his Christian faith and show some compassion here. Now, some are uncomfortable with this. Well, what do you think about this move by Christina Keneally in particular, the Shadow Home Affairs Minister? Well, the Prime Minister himself has has uh, has made his own faith a matter of public display. Now, I'm not suggesting that he's out there proselytising, but his faith is obviously very important to him, both as a human being and as a participant in public life. So I don't think these lines can be arbitrarily drawn. It's OK for uh, Scott Morrison to talk about his own faith, but it, then it's not OK for anyone else to talk about it. I mean, sorry, guys, you, you can't have that every which way. In terms of appealing to Morrison's faith, well, I don't know, maybe that's just a sort of a hook, a partisan hook. Mm. No, look at that guy. He professes to be a, a Christian. Look, look at him being hypocritical. Uh, but I think it appeals more broadly to uh, to values in the Australian community and to, I suppose, we, we've seen this really, I think, over the last several years, a softening, I think, in attitudes in Australia. You wouldn't want to exaggerate that. No. You really wouldn't. Uh, but... Certainly, we've seen, you know, Liberals attentive to their constituencies and and concern in their constituencies among Christians and other well-meaning people who've voted Liberal for a long time. We have seen this growing unease about the various cruelties associated with Australia's deterrence regime. And it sort of has taken, again, I wouldn't want to exaggerate, but it has sort of blunted the edge of what used to be very kind of uh, pantomimish, black and white, strong, weak, goodies, baddies presentations of this issue in in the Australian political debate. So I think, look, again, I'm I'm not saying that uh, Christina uh, Keneally wasn't just invoking this as a gratuitous sort of partisan gotcha to Scott Morrison, but I actually think uh, with Labor's positioning on this at the moment, there is a broader appeal going on to that sort of that unease in the Australian community about whether or not 
we are just completely over the top. It is interesting, back to the faith issue and the way it's being used, because I think this is now going to be a bit of a thing, right, given this Prime Minister will continue under the rules to be Prime Minister for this term unless they get rid of the rules. He will be Prime Minister and yet, you know, Labor's put this marker down. I suppose others could use the same against someone like Christina Keneally. I mean, she supports an offshore detention policy. Is that in line with her Christian values? She's sure, also a Christian. Sure. You could use it anyway, couldn't you? It's a question of values, isn't it? I mean, the, this Prime Minister has clearly told us all, and there's no problem with this, that his values are clearly rooted in his Christianity, in his faith, and Labor is questioning the values as they're being applied in this case. I mean, there's no doubt the government has a policy cover for allowing uh, a discretionary intervention here and they're not doing it, so they're making a choice. Christina Keneally and others are saying, well, that's a values choice. I think that is okay myself. And even if it does flip back on Christina Keneally, well, that's okay too, I suppose. All of these parliamentarians, be it Scott Morrison, be it Christina Keneally, be it Tony Abbott, who in fact faced similar sorts of questions because obviously, you know, because of his strong Catholic faith. I mean, I was raised a Catholic. <laughs> I guess, I guess don't, the problem... They don't the, sit easily, you know. But the problem is think that we don't want our politicians making policy based on their faith. That is the truth, generally. That's yes, not how well, we want is, it. Yeah. But policy is being interpreted and if politicians are, you know, making their personal platform very clearly about to some degree their faith, then I think it opens it up for it. I think that's what's happened here. But generally, by and large, we don't want our policy discussions taken in the the aura of someone's personal faith, do we? We want yeah, we are, we've yeah. been uncomfortable well, we, about that in the past. Yeah, we have sort of had our debates largely, well let's just say over the last twenty years, largely in a secular frame in Australia. And you wouldn't want to end up in the sort of Bible-thumping kind of hellscape of American politics where everybody invokes their Christianity in order to do, you know, unspeakable things or, or, or not unspeakable. I mean, it's sort of at one level you think, well, God, that's, com- that's completely irrelevant. But it, we are sort of drifting, though, into into this territory, Fran, and that's that's an interesting point you raise about whether or not we want to be there. So there's a broader question there whether or not we want the invocation of faith in Australian politics and whether we want that to be a relevant concern. But in terms of people, then I think it's fine if a person has raised their own faith then to be questioned on how their professed faith lines up with their actions. I, I, I don't think that there's that's somehow off limits, particularly if you've invoked it yourself. Just briefly, before we let you go to do all your wonderful work, Catherine, Australia is on track to meet its own 2020 renewable energy target. Let's talk about this. Break it down for us, Catherine. Where do we oh stand? Yeah, oh, you've got two minutes. This is your challenge. You can do oh, it. Where are we God. at? I mean, yeah, we're meeting that. That's good. Good news story? Yeah. Yeah, tops. Um, look, uh, we it was actually clear that we were meeting it two years ago, but anyway, okay, it's it's had another ring around the garden path this week where the energy minister said, great, we're meeting our renewables target. Energy minister failed to mention that long period where Tony Abbott tried to get rid of the renewable energy target. That strangely wasn't mentioned, but anyway, that caused an investment drought uh, and there's been an, a rebound since then and renewables have come back on with a vengeance and that's all very well and good. The energy minister's also saying, oh my God, we've got this problem of imbalance in the energy market. We've got too many renewables and, and not enough dispatchable power and baseload power and all that sort of stuff. Oh, duh, guys. Maybe that's what happens when you try to get rid of the RET, but you keep it 
and then you get rid of the other thing, the carbon price, which was supposed to manage that transition for you. Maybe you end up, I don't know, guys, but maybe you end up in a situation where you have lots of renewables and not a lot of the other stuff because you got rid of the mechanism to make sure we had the other stuff. Mm. Anyway, that's yeah. the simplest version. So it drives me bonkers. When the minister it, said he's foreseen this was going to come to this point, you thought, yeah, <sighs> well, we still don't have a policy. Catherine, as always, that was a sensational <laughs> explanation of where we're at right now I think now you made your two energy. minutes, Catherine. Very impressive. Thanks for coming <laughs> oh, on. Oh, it's good times, girls. Good times. See ya. Thanks, Catherine. All righty, it's time for question time. We love this segment of the party room. And the first question of the day comes from Rosemary. Hi, Fran and PK. Love the show. We all know that there aren't enough women in Parliament representing 50% or 51% of the people. So how come in that case there's so many amazing female commentators? There's Fran, there's PK, there's Lenore, there's Annabelle, there's Lee, there's Laura. It's fantastic, but how come? Are you all just frustrated politicians? I'm really interested to hear your views on that. Cheers. Fran, are you a frustrated <laughs> politician? Well, Rosemary, thanks for your question. I can tell you one thing I'm not. It's a frustrated or aspiring politician. I have never had an aspiration for that job. How about you, PK? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I think when I was 15, actually. No, I won't lie. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I was think... never interested in it at all. But And I, I just think the number of, and you're right, there are quite a number of female political commentators at the ABC and at The Guardian and a range of places yeah. and a long, long history of that. Michelle Grattan, of course, has been in this space for a very long time. Um, I just think it's a reflection of the fact that there's male commentators and female commentators and there's male politicians and female politicians. It's just that the Liberal Party is not doing enough to recruit uh, women at the moment and that's a whole separate issue. All right, second question is from Joel. Hi, Party Room. Given the revelations at the New South Wales ICAC regarding cash-in-a-bag donation to New South Wales Labor from a billionaire, is it time Australia got rid of political donations entirely and the influence these vast sums of cash bring to vested interest groups? Would it be possible to move to a democracy voucher type scheme which was used in Seattle, Washington municipal elections in 2017 to make parties focus on the people, not the wealth? Love the show. Bye. Thanks. A democracy voucher. I quite like this idea. I guess that means it's taxpayer funded in some way and every political party has to try and attract as many vouchers as they can, like they have to attract as many votes as they can and therefore you'd think it'd be a cap on spending. Stop the arms race. Yeah, look, I think there is a shift in the debate on this towards this feeling that perhaps, you know, you need to get the this private donation money out of politics because Clearly it does have a corrosive effect or it has the the look of influence at the very least, even if you can't always prove it, but the look of influence. You know, if, if you're giving money, you might want something for it, right? Um, whether that's, co you know, whether that's obvious or not, that is the impression that many people have. And I think, you know, many people oh. think it's time to address it. But the big question is, Fran, do taxpayers want to bankroll elections at a higher rate, which is what they'd have to do. So are taxpayers prepared to pay for it? I don't know if they are. I'm not saying they're not. Well, I think it depends, sure. doesn't it? It depends what cap we put on the budgets, on the on the election budgets. We might be prepared to do it if the government's only asking us for $100 more a year or something, or it's built into some tax, you know, comes off the Medicare levy or something like that. So the argument would have to be made that this was going to strengthen our democracy to put a cap on um, spending in election campaigns. And if you ask most people whether they'd appreciate um, fewer 
TV ads in an election campaign, I think they'd say yes. Fewer robocalls, I think they'd say yes. So it's about making the argument really and biting the bullet. And at the moment, no party is prepared to to, to lead that charge. But privately, they all, and publicly, Tanya Plibersek d- did it recently just on last week on Insiders, you know, they don't like the arms race that is a federal election campaign in terms of fundraising. It is a problem. Think about it from their perspective. They kind of hate doing it, a lot of them, right? Like they, they literally are holding out a hat going, please, right? Like sucking up to people, putting on these events. They hate doing it, many of them. So there's another angle there, which is that they would love not just the morality of it, but also just the labour. It's crappy work begging for money. Goodbye, all. We'll be back next week, of course, in your podcast feed. Yeah, and it'll be an exciting week because Parliament will be back, so quite Woo-hoo. a lot would have happened. Now, question time submissions are always welcome. Record them if you like. You can just find your, your voice recorder on your phone if you have a smartphone. Record it, send it to us. Tweet them at us, email them at thepartyroom at abc.net.au or hashtag thepartyroom. How good are recorded questions, to quote the Prime Minister. And you know the drill, subscribe, rate, review and recommend us. Where would we be without you? Nowhere is the answer. We're nothing without you. See you, friend. See you, PK. PK, have you gone too? No, I'm here. (laughs) You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.